What's up, everyone? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This week, I'm talking to Virginia Alcon, who is a comparative literature PhD student at Rutgers University, where she's currently focusing on ways in which science fiction and socialism intersect to imagine new citizens. Her research is primarily focused on Chinese science fiction, but she also looks at Russian and East German science fiction. This is one of our longest episodes. I think this is actually our longest episode to date, and spoilers, Virginia and I don't even make it through the entire conversation, and so look out for part two of this interview um, at a date TBD. This is episode 11 of Untenured Tracks. up my dissertation on socialist science fiction and embodiment. And before I really get into my own research, I think maybe a little bit of background in just the state of the field right now. And when I say the field, what I really mean primarily is Chinese science fiction. And so Chinese sci-fi has become just incredibly popular in, I would say, the last 10 years or so. Um, Obviously, you have the three-body problem. Um, The Wandering Earth just came out recently to, you know, really mixed reviews, I think, um, since it had some aspects to it that a Western audience wasn't used to seeing. Um, But we also have Hao Jingfeng's Folding Beijing, which won a Hugo, and then the Waste Tide, uh, Stanley Chincho fans, recent eco disaster slash mech thriller, um, and then of course you can't really talk about Chinese sci-fi in a Western context without mentioning Kim Liu, um, since he's just such a prodigious translator. Um, his hand is in pretty much everything at this point when it comes to translating Chinese science fiction for a Western audience. But what's really interesting about that to me is that because Chinese sci-fi has taken off so much in recent years, um, and I really do see the rise in popularity within the last 10 years, is that A lot of science fiction commentators and theorists think that because it's become popular in the last 10 years, that that means it really only started existing in the last 10 years. And that's something that my research really pushes back against. Um, You know, the idea that just because a Western audience is discovering something for the first time, it does not mean that they're discovering is something that is existing for the first time. Uh, Chinese science fiction has been a genre, you know, in various different 
kinds of forms for a really long time, long before the West decided that it was interested in it. Um, but I will say we are, it's absolutely true that we are in the middle of a golden era of Chinese sci-fi right now. We're so lucky to have access to so many high quality translators, so many people in China, uh, in Chinese speaking countries, in diasporic communities, people who are writing uh, in Chinese, both for a Chinese speaking audience, but also with the understanding that their work is going to have a broader audience um, than ever before. So that's really exciting for all of us. Um, but uh, so my primary focus in my research is Chinese science fiction. Like that's the focus of it. But because I'm a comparative literature doctoral candidate, more broadly what I'm looking at is socialist science fiction. And I'm looking at that across a variety of linguistic contexts, national contexts. Um, the, my research takes place in Chinese, in Russian, in German, French, Esperanto. Um, <laughs> really? Really. <laughs> there's an extremely uh, socialist element to Esperanto, this idea that... <laughs> Uh, everybody would be connected and everyone would be able to communicate. A lot of Esperantist literature is actually explicitly socialist. Wow. Um, right. <laughs> that, make, that makes perfect sense. But, you know, if you would have asked me five minutes ago if I would know about Esperantin science fiction, that's amazing. <laughs> that's the whole point of this show is to expose people to this, like, all this wild stuff that's out there. Yeah, and you would never know a lot of times. Um, <laughs> and Soviet writers were really interested in Esperanto. Um, so there's often, you know, Russian language texts that have some Esperanto just sprinkled in there through them. Um, huh. <laughs> but the focus of my research is on Chinese literature. Um, but... As far as my dissertation project at the moment, what I'm looking at is um, is Russian, Soviet Russian science fiction from basically the 1918 revolution um, up through Perestroika, mm -hmm. and then Chinese science fiction uh, from the ascendancy of Mao to roughly the beginning of the Deng period, so like early 1980s or so, and then a little bit of East German science fiction for, you know, the very brief period of time that East Germany was around. There's not yeah. such a spread of time to worry about with that. Yeah. Um. <laughs> um, so I, I'm teaching a class this semester on revolutions. Um, yeah, it's... It's really interesting, right? So my, my background, I'm a criminologist, my PhD is in sociology, and so I just kind of came at this from like an, I guess like an amateur direction, 
Uh-huh. You know, um, just wanting to learn more about revolutions and like the social and, and some of the political stuff. And, and this is, I think, an opportunity to shout out Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, which has been like my lecture notes <laughs> for, <laughs> for it. So uh, this is all to say, like, I'm, I'm genuinely curious now, like, what type of stuff are they writing about? In, in science fiction, in Russia and China during, you know, the, the rise of these, you know, revolutions that transformed the globe. Oh my gosh, what aren't they writing about? Um, so, okay, I'm going to actually back up a little bit okay. with this because I think that this is a really important aspect of what I'm looking at and what makes um, Chinese science fiction in particular, but socialist science fiction more broadly, um, a really rich conceptual field. And part of that is what we mean at all when we even talk about science fiction. Okay. So... (laughs) Obviously, anybody who is at all critically interested in science fiction as a genre knows that it's kind of a notoriously difficult genre to define and pin down. Um, You know, people throughout science fiction as a genre's, and that's definitely with scare quotes, (laughs) as a genre's, like throughout its history know that there have been numerous attempts to describe what it means. I think that now most people use the same definition for sci-fi as they do for pornography, which is, I know it when I see it. Um, (laughs) But that's not always the case. Uh, You know, relatively recently, I don't remember the publication date, I want to say 2005, there was a short story called What I Didn't See by the author Karen Joy Fowler that was really contentious because it was published as a science fiction story. It won quite a few awards, I believe. Um, And a lot of people read it and they were like, I don't understand what's science fiction about this. Like, nothing about this strikes me as science fiction. Um, It's a story about a woman who goes on a guerrilla hunting expedition. Uh, I really highly recommend it for everyone. It's a great story, but it's also one of the stories that I think uh, problematizes the, the boundaries of what we mean when we say science fiction and whether or not we do see it uh, and recognize it when we see it at all. Um, but that's kind of doubly difficult when we're talking about science fiction in a non-English context, because there's so much uh, linguistic and epistemological richness to all of the terms involved that get really flattened in an English gloss of this. So, like in Chinese, for example, um, the word science is not a term that has been a stable term for really very long at all. It's a relatively new term in Chinese. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to ask you to remember all of these <laughs> words, but the contemporary <laughs> word for science in Chinese is kusui, um, 
And this is a, a word for science that has only been adopted within the last century. And it was adopted from a Japanese loan word, which was itself based on a German word. Um, so it's going through all of these really weird transliterations. Um, the German word was Wissenschaft, and it got transliterated into Japanese as Kagaku. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing that. I don't speak any Japanese. Um, <laughs> Could have fooled me. <laughs> Kagaku got taken into Chinese as Kusui. It's the same characters, but pronounced differently. Um, but before Chinese started using Kusui to mean science, they used a different word, which was Guju. And Guju was like a really Neo-Confucian term that was all about like things being in their place, essentially. Like you could understand the universe by understanding the way that things fit together. And it had a lot of uh, traditional baggage tied to it, essentially, because it was Confucian in mm -hmm. origin. And so when this new word for science came in, it had this historical background of information that could be verified through scientific um, like experimentation and getting the same results over and over again. It was a fundamentally different way of interacting with the natural world and also understanding how information could be categorized and the fact that it did come from Japan from Germany into Chinese as this loan word made it sort of suspect because it wasn't like a, a nationally born term for science it was seen as uh potentially problematic, uh, but also very, quote-unquote, modern. Um, and okay. so when it gets attached to the idea of fiction, it's also changing how literature works mm -hmm. when, when this happens. So this is almost getting off target, but... This, the categories that we use in the West historically to categorize literature were not the same ones that were being used in China historically. So we, and we tend to think of those as stable categories that probably exist everywhere, and they just don't. Um, so we have things in the West historically like the epic or the novel or the poem or the short story and historically in chinese literature those were not the genres or the categories they had and in fact the short story as a, a form of literature was being introduced into chinese literature at roughly the same time as this idea of science this new idea of science and they, in a lot of ways, developed together because of this author named Lu Xun. And Lu Xun is, in Chinese literature, recognized as 
the father of modern Chinese literature full stop. Like, he's probably single-handedly the most recognized literary figure in China of the last couple hundred years. Um, It would be very difficult to overstate how important he is. He introduced, well, he didn't introduce, he popularized uh, writing in like a vernacular as opposed to literary Chinese. He popularized short stories as a form. And he was also one of the first authors to uh, translate and write science fiction in China. Um, and he's not really remembered much today for the science fiction translations, uh, more for the vernacular and the short story. Um, but he also was involved in, in all of that. But so what I'm really getting at here is that science fiction as a genre was really, um, suspect because it was seen as inherently associated with Western elements in the beginning, because it relied on both a new form of literature, the short story, Mm -hmm. and also relied on a new form of science, which was Cushway. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm. But that being said, and there's just so much to this, it's so rich. um, That being said, the term science fiction to refer to a genre of literature was used in China before it ever was in English. (laughs) So the idea that there was a genre called science fiction was utilized there before we, you know, we quote unquote ever used that to refer to a type of literature. So, <laughs> I'm trying to like put the words in the right order in my head. Um, so, Chinese literature has a conceptualization of science fiction before the West does. So, if I'm following you correctly, then this would mean that their conceptualization of of science fiction would have to do more with the old definition of science, no, it's, right? It's to an extent, but it's more that just they recognized science fiction as a literary genre before mm-hmm. Western authors recognized it as a genre that was separate from other things. Okay, I got you. Um, so, you know, f- there's so much debate in literary studies about who was the first quote unquote science fiction author. Mm hmm. You know, various people say, oh, it was Mary Shelley with Frankenstein, Mm -hmm. or it was Jules Verne, or it was H.G. Wells. And that's really not, that's a really anachronistic way to think about that, because science fiction as a genre didn't exist when they were writing those stories. So you can only de facto go back in time to say they wrote the first one, because we've created a genre since then that we say it fits into. And, and historically Chinese recognized the genre of science fiction before Western authors did. Okay. Um, 
So it was a genre inside in Chinese before it was a genre in Western literature. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> for being, your patience. That being said, you know, with all these terms floating around, uh, what was science wasn't the same, and what was literature also wasn't the same. Okay. So it was it was a genre. It just didn't necessarily match up with what we would recognize using those terms. Okay, so to go back to my my question then, to, mm-hmm. to get us um, off the detour, which thank you for that background information. Um, so I'm thinking about, I guess when I asked this question, I was thinking about it more in terms of science fiction movies and, and less so literature, but I think the themes are probably still applicable, right? Like mm-hmm. early American science fiction having to do a lot with um, concerns about... <laughs> Uh, the end of the world, right? Or, um, you know, looking at stuff, and this is obviously not early, but post-World War II stuff um, and, and all these sorts of, I guess today what we would think of as like B-movies that are dealing with, you know, what happens if the nuclear arms race gets out of hand and now there are giant <laughs> insects trampling over everything and um, and then like going from there, right? So, what what sorts of themes were people during the revolutions that you that you've come across like what were they struggling with were they was this merely like a projection of um some sort of and this is a very western capitalist public at school education coming out right now um like a projection of some like socialist future or um, what sorts of end of the world scenarios are they are they grappling with or is it really just a mirror version of what's happening in the West with nuclear war and everything else. Okay. So it's definitely not a mirror version of what's happening in the West. Although they do. And when I'm saying they, now I'm spreading it out to socialist science fiction, not just a Chinese context. Um, The same kinds of fears and anxieties are there, Mm -hmm. but your your public school education is not wrong at all um, <laughs> when it comes to that. That there are just very different literary constraints mm-hmm. on what could and could not be published. Yeah, and especially you know when when Soviet Russia was at its apex of power, it exerted significant cultural uh cultural force over the still developing prc the people's republic of china at that point Mm -hmm. and a lot of the literature that was being created in china was directly in response to um aesthetic and literary ideals that were being established in russia at the time and what that meant was socialist realism Mm -hmm. um And as far as science fiction, what that meant was that there were certain constraints on it that Western science fiction did not have. Mm -hmm. One was that, with a few exceptions, it was basically limited to 50 years in the future. Like, so you could, you could extrapolate, but only so far. How come? There was there was literally uh, a literary limitation that was um, called the 
the wall of the near horizon or something that any kind of literature that was set in the future had to be probable based on current technology and situation. So like that didn't mean that it had to happen. It just meant that you couldn't make things up. Like anything that might happen in your story had to be extrapolatable from the way things actually were in the current situation. Okay. Um, so like, like the entire, I guess, subfield of, um, sudden alien invasion <laughs> types of stories. Off the table. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because it's not immediately <laughs> identifiable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, huh. absolutely. You really don't see any science fiction, uh, that has to do with like space opera themes. Yeah. Or, and I'm talking, you know, I'm talking right now about literature that was being produced, uh, under socialist state regimes that was approved yeah. by those state regimes. There were absolutely authors who were working outside of those boundaries, even though they were from those backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And that's not who I'm talking about. Oh, I'm, I, I can only imagine what like the zine culture must have looked like. <laughs> right. Like, right. <laughs> like the dangerous um, ideas that these people must have been trying to reckon with that they, they knew like potentially could get them into trouble, but still having the desire to create this art and like share these ideas. And just mm -hmm. as, as people grapple with some of the things that they're undoubtedly worried about, or even just like, I have a really cool idea for a story. I don't want to get it out on paper. Like, yeah. <laughs> like there has to be like some really like amazing stuff. That's just been lost to history. Well, and so, you know, there's not, there is research out there on socialist science fiction or more narrowly, there is research out there on like Soviet Russian science fiction or, you know, much less, but there is some research on um, Mao era science fiction, what little there was. Um, but a lot of that research, certainly not all of it, but a lot of that research is focused on, what what wasn't able to be produced because of those rules uh -huh. or how people attempted to circumvent those rules or what they did to push back against the state. And my research is about how individuals worked within those state structures to support the state um, and to really produce things that did fa uh, fall within the letter of the law. Um, you know, I'm not looking at it as a loss of things that could have been. I'm looking at how creative people were able to be while still working within those boundaries. Okay. Um, and you just get some fascinating, fascinating things out of it. Um, so one of the stories, for example, that I look at is a story from 1981 called, in, in English, it's called uh, Conjugal Happiness in the Arms of Morpheus. And it's really two short stories that got pushed together when it was translated into English. And the first sto short story is called I Decided to Divorce My Robot Wife. 
and the second one is Dream of a Soft Country. Um, and it's by an author named um, Leah Hawk. And it's just, it's an incredible story. It's one of my favorite ones. It's about, um, it's, it's set in China very clearly. And in order to address overpopulation, what they have done is all biological women are able to marry whomever they want and have kids if they want to. Presumably they do. But all biological men are assigned a robot wife by the government. And they can't procreate with their robot wife. Like, it can't have robot babies. And that's how they're addressing overpopulation. And in it, the robot wife... So the the main character in the story is a husband who gets his robot wife and she's the most perfect wife in the entire world. She's obedient in every way. She does everything that he wants. She anticipates all of his needs and, you know, does her best to fulfill them. She's endlessly loving. She puts up with all of his bad behavior. Um, she's the most beautiful woman in the whole world, blah, 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 blah. Um, and he finds over time that he's starting to get bored with this because he has everything that he wants. And so he starts pushing her. Like, he commands her to do really humiliating things, and she does it. Um, he starts to abuse her, and she takes it. Um, but it all kind of comes to a head when he gets really drunk, and he commands her to bring him some papers. And, like, he has specific commands about which papers he wants her to bring him so he can burn them. And she seems really hesitant, but she does it anyway because that's what her programming is. And after he burns them and he wakes up the next day with a terrible hangover, he realizes that he's burnt the last 10 years of work that he and his company have been doing that was like scheduled to win some huge prize. Um, and so, of course, you know, this is obviously his fault, but he blames her because she's the one who did it instead mm -hmm. of telling him he was wrong. So he tries to get a divorce, and she doesn't want one because she's programmed to love him. And he takes her to court. It's a huge scandal. Um, the court's like, why would you ever want to divorce this perfect, beautiful wife? And the, at the end of the first half... He doesn't get the divorce, and he is basically stuck living with the perfect woman, which is ruining his life. Um, but then the second part is where things get really interesting in it. Um, <laughs> this very, like, Dave's ex machina character shows up who's like, hey, if you want your wife to be more like a human, here's this, like, frankly, very silly regimen that she can undergo that involves, like, drinking whale's milk and reading Fuhrenbach, like... <laughs> We're going to hack your robot wife. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and as she becomes more and more human-like, she realizes how terribly he's been treating her. Yeah. And she 
basically like has a come to Jesus moment where she's like, you're treating me like a sex slave. You are being horrible because you think that I'm not as good as you are. Well, robots are better than humans in every way. And I'm going to prove it by leaving you. So she leaves him Uh and then she takes him to court to get a divorce. Um, And the whole end of it is just this like, exegesis of how terrible traditional marriage is for women in China and how if the country as a whole is going to move forward, then horrible people like the narrator are going to have to basically get with the times. Um, And then in the end, she gets her divorce and that's pretty much the end of it. So when you read it, you're like, what was even going on here? But when you read it and you know at the same time that the second annual um, marriage law had just been passed when this was being written, which uh, recognized that women could ask for divorces for the first time and receive property when they got a divorce and have custody of children if they got a divorce And also at the same time, the country was starting to grapple with what would eventually become the one-child policy uh, and what they were going to do about overpopulation. You realize this story is really deeply involved with the actual events that are going on at the time, and it's taking this, you know, science fictional approach to it, but these are real concerns that people had, Um, And these were real things that the state was very invested in dealing with. So you could still have really exciting stories. They just, in some ways, were not the same kinds of stories that a lot of Western sci-fi was creating. That's that's really interesting. Um, Wow. So, like, I kind of get the impression, like, because of the because of the laws that these authors are having to um, deal with in, in order to get stuff, you know, cleared by the state that mm-hmm. it, in a way. So I guess like I could, I could see how somebody could, could completely conform to this and just write like drivel, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, I, like I, I don't care how good it is. I just want to get published and I, I want to see my name in print. Right. So I'll write whatever the state wants me to, but then I could also see like, the, the existence of the law and the structure here kind of giving people almost like implicit permission, right. To, to put to, to other pieces that are kind of like dancing on the edge of being really radical. So that, that story that you were just telling us about, like that, that seems to me as something like I could, I can imagine there being people in the Chinese government who were really not happy about this. Right. Like yeah, this is, so- this is challenging, like norms that we are, we're, we're struggling with and um yeah it just it just seems like something like that could come across as being really radical itself Uh yeah there's definitely possibilities for that um so this particular author had kind of a uh a very state sanctioned career after this like Mm -hmm. he wrote this and a couple other short stories, but then he went on to really just write a whole bunch of biographies of famous communist party leaders. Um, so he was very beloved, Yeah. but 
other authors did have some problems with censorship. Um, like there's a, he had a contemporary, um, a contemporary author at the same time as this one who wrote another short story that's about um, a corrosive space bacteria that falls to earth and the courageous scientists who risk their life and limb in order to figure out its secrets so that they can apply this like technological development to China's benefit. And they're successful, but they die in the process. And, you know, this is a very, it's seen as a, a heroic sacrifice. And that story was definitely okay. But the same author shortly after this wrote another one where it mentions scientists um, curing AIDS in like the far Western reaches of China. And that one was banned and to the best of my knowledge, never actually published because it implied that China had AIDS. Um, and the, the powers that be didn't want to acknowledge that that existed at all. Yeah. Um, so like you could run afoul of things even at the same time that you were trying to um, prop up the state. Yeah, that makes sense, right? And and, and probably mirrors stuff happening in the West as well. Mm-hmm. Like at least specifically to to HIV and AIDS in the beginning of that of that epidemic yeah. here, and and the reluctance of the state to like I'm thinking about Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. and how terribly the Reagan administration handled it. Right. Yeah, and you know we see. So, you know, to the best of my knowledge, there was no equivalent of the Red Scare with, uh, uh, like, a politician going after anybody writing pro-capitalist tracts just because nobody was really writing pro-capitalist tracts. But, um, but, you know, in the West, we also have had to grapple a lot with the censorship of the ruling party at any given point in time. Like, censorship is not at all uh, limited just to China or Russia. Um, There's a long history of censorship in Western media as well. Uh, We just tend to not call it that Mm -hmm. or recognize it for that. Yeah. So um, in like throughout the day today and like knowing what I was going to be talking to you about tonight, I've been trying to, and we talked about this a little bit before we started to record, like trying to come up with questions for you that were not like run of the mill dummy questions. Uh (laughs) Um, And so I am, I am a a big science fiction fan. um, But I think probably most of my fandom has historically been like pop science fiction stuff. Uh So I mean, nobody listening to this can see, but half of my basement where I'm recording right now is decorated in Star Wars stuff, <laughs> right? Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> yeah. The one Doctor Who poster. I've got lots of Marvel stuff. Um, <laughs> and so um, I've been working on a on a book chapter um, for a, a pop culture crim theory book. Um, shout out to Sarah Daly, who has not yet appeared on the podcast, but will soon. Um, for putting that together. And I wanted to write about Star Wars and I wanted to write about critical criminology, which is like Marxist criminology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as I'm working on it, um, I, I kind of realized that like a lot of the stories that I've grown up really loving um, have been really just 
love letters to capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, like, not very subtle ways. Either. Yeah, yeah, not at all subtle. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I think, something that a lot of people would probably be taken aback by, right? Like, or at least be, like, really surprised about, you know, thinking mm-hmm. about the the Star Wars versus Star Trek debate that I yeah. grew up around. <laughs> like, in some ways, they're very different stories, but really, they're not, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, they're, they're, they both have this sort of fetishization of the military they both Mm -hmm. um erase order and structure (laughs) yes order and structure and um like there's not there's not a lot of diversity of ideas i think and Mm -hmm. presented in either either these major franchises and when there is something new put into it it's always treated as either like an analog to some kind of like ethnic strife happening currently Mm -hmm. um or as a a stand-in for some like larger racial or ethnic stereotype Mm -hmm. um or it's just treated as something that's just completely insane and why would anybody ever believe this thing this is wacky we need to send an away team down to immediately um correct their thinking if they ever (laughs) want to join starfleet (laughs) right yeah um so i guess all as somebody who's been really grappling with this now and, and trying to like diversify my reading and stuff, um, are there, how do I want to ask this question? Are there tropes in like Western science fiction that like beyond that, that you see a lot of that, um, that just don't exist in, I think in socialist science fiction very broadly. Uh, does that make sense? Tropes is in like um, in support of capitalism, like capitalist tropes, or just formulaic tropes. That don't, I guess just I guess just formulaic, right? Because you you had said there wouldn't have been anything that was pro capitalist from any kind of socialist authors, so mm-hmm. so certainly not that. But I guess just like the the larger sort of formula mm-hmm. type of stuff. Yeah, so I would definitely, you know, me personally, I would be very careful when I'm saying that this doesn't exist or this does exist. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not a binary where socialist science fiction is all this way. Yeah. non-socialist science fiction is all another way but for sure yeah and i recognize that my question is very dumb guy oversimplification (laughs) (laughs) well but one thing and you really got me thinking about this by bringing up star trek which you know is absolutely a franchise that i love even though in a lot of ways it's very much uh do what i say not what i do with its emphasis on like infinite diversity and infinite combination while also the soft neoliberalism of the federation is always right Um, yes always right always (laughs) infallible that there's no there's never any kind of punishment for anything (laughs) right in the mary universe (laughs) but um But, you know, that got me thinking about, like, the original series with Kirk, um, who I I will also say I think gets unfairly maligned a lot by later 
fans as being like a big dumb bro when <laughs> you know i think there's a lot more to him than that but um, yeah but he's the philosopher that, bro <laughs> right a lot of a lot of popular science fiction in the west and this is true of a lot of our media not just science fiction um, has an element of conquest to it, and that can be either of space, as in, you know, the final frontier, of course, um, or of a geopolitical area or conquest of a new concept or, like, a sexual conquest. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we see much less of that in socialist science fiction. It's not absent. There you know, you could point to any number of texts that are about conquest, but but I feel like it's not emphasized nearly as much. Um, and one thing that is absolutely really not emphasized is sexual conquest. Um, mm-hmm. Because individual romantic love was really seen as sort of a bourgeois concept. Um so even Marx, when he was writing in uh, Capital, said that as society developed, that the family would disappear because the family structure is an inherently bourgeois concept based on ownership and based on property rights, um, both of individuals, but also of actual material goods. So in a... In a bourgeois tradition, the man owns his wife, and he owns his children, they're his, and he owns his house, and he owns everything that all of their labor produces for his own use. Um, And Marx saw that as something that would, as a matter of course, disappear as society developed. And in Chinese science fiction, any kind of romantic love was seen as, if not necessarily suspect, then definitely of less importance than the love that you were expected to show the party and your nation. So it would absolutely come secondary. Uh, And people were expected to make sacrifices in their personal life in order to focus more on revolutionary and comradely love. So you really don't see any like hot space babes or anything. Um, (laughs) You know, that's just not an element of really any socialist science fiction. (laughs) You know, for better or worse, if you love hot space babes. (laughs) No, I was going to say, like, that's a potential title for the episode, I guess. Um, we'll go with something much more serious. Um, but prior to that, I, I, I think you got to exactly what I was trying to ask. I just didn't have the language for it, right? Like, science fiction that develops in the absence of imperialism and in the absence of colonialism, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think that's basically what we're talking about. Yes, although I would absolutely say that you know, the the Soviet state was colonial and imperialist, as was uh, the Chinese state as well. We just, um, 
we don't recognize it maybe as much. Um, that's definitely, that's absolutely something we're seeing more and more visibly in the contemporary world. Um, you know, because globalization flattens things in some ways, but in other ways it makes it more obvious problems that have existed that we just weren't aware of before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the ongoing riots in Hong Kong, yeah. for example, or the detainment of uh, Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. Yes. These are absolutely colonialist genocidal projects. I mean, less genocidal in Hong Kong, but these are genocidal projects. Um, So, you know, I'm not making an ethical distinction between capitalist nation states and socialist nation states because Mm -hmm. both have committed horrific atrocities. Um, You know, how many died under Mao and how many died under Stalin? Yeah, um, I, I'm not positing socialism as um, this peaceful, unproblematic force, but at the same time, I'm also certainly not saying uh, I'm not reiterating any red scare tactics of saying, "Oh, socialism is bad," a priority because it's socialist, mm-hmm. like. Capitalism has also created untold atrocities um, that I think we will be reckoning with for centuries, uh, assuming we don't die from climate catastrophe first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, which is itself one of the legacies of capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And and so I, I suppose I should like qualify because obviously, you know, lots of atrocities have happened um, under socialist regimes and I'm not trying to downplay that at all. I guess my thinking was more in terms of like, so like manifest destiny, right. Is, is something that people would say is like practically embroidered into American culture. Yes. <laughs> and, and so like that concept, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that there's, there's no like parallel to that. Is there in, in Chinese or Russian like yeah, political I mean, life? I don't think in the same way that it exists in America, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, America is its own... <clears throat> yeah. Its own monster. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is something of worms. Um, <laughs> um, but there are certainly um, parallel ideas of land ownership, human rights issues and expansionism. Um, But conquest, the way that it's portrayed in Western media, I think is, is largely absent insofar as a lot of Western media, just in general, not just science fiction is really focused on like this lone hero taking what's his. Um, And a lot of socialist science fiction is about, like, having a natural right to something, but that being, like, um, the rights of the people to something. Like, it's less about, like, uh, you know, Kirk in space leaving a, a trail behind him and more 
like uh, the people have occupied this land for the betterment of the people, sort of like that. So, is there like is the the genre or the subgenre of like the hero's journey? Does that exist? Like, or is that like a, a popular trope? No, I would say not. There's not so much the hero's journey. Um, no, not a, even when when there are individual heroes, they usually um, do speak for usually do speak for more than just themselves, um, or they're there to show the folly of an individual. Um, Often what we see is a very flawed narrator who through his or her, more often his, but through his or her actions shows us what's wrong that we can rectify. So the two stories that I mentioned earlier, the robot wife story and the space bacteria corrosion story, the narrators of both of those are first person uh, sort of like greedy men who lose track of the most important thing and in doing so the the audience is able to see firsthand where they went wrong and how they went wrong and then when at the end they sort of learn their lesson it's very didactic um you know oh i didn't um I didn't work hard enough to better the state or I didn't work hard enough to recognize equality in my marriage, um, things like that. So they're very, they're very much used as like teaching tools. That's really interesting. Like using, using this type of creativity as a way to reinforce that sort of like community value. I mean, mm-hmm. that's something that, that Western science fiction does too, but like mm-hmm. clearly, clearly not in that, that same purpose. Right. And of course there's always the intersection too of, you know, the, the national aspect versus the ideological aspect, because there's certainly Western writers who are writing socialist science fiction. Yes. You know, you have Kim Stanley Robinson or of course, Ursula K. Le Guin, um, that's socialist science fiction, but it's not coming out of the same context. So mm. that's not what I focus on. They have their own things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but which is which is totally fair, right? Because like I think I think context really matters when you're mm-hmm. when you're talking about this type of stuff, right? And so it, if you're going to to focus on like the socialist part of it, like sure you could talk about Western socialism too, but I, I don't know. It, it seems like I don't want to say like you're splitting hairs, but um, like you're right that that deserves its own sort of its whole other qualification, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> like writing from the background of like um, I've I've been teaching a lot about like the anarchist movement in the United States, for example, and so having to write from a context of like from the Haymarket Square bombing on through the execution of Sacco and Vanzetti, right? Like that, Mm -hmm. that creates something very specific, I think to the U S that maybe doesn't, isn't going to apply. And then like changes the trajectory of ideas and other Mm -hmm. places. Um, so I think the last thing that I want to ask you about, and, and you've already given us a lot to think about and a lot to read about, 
Um, do you have any any other specific like book recommendations or um, story recommendations that you want to put out there? Yeah, I mean, wow, there's just so much. Um, again, because we are really in a golden age of science fiction right now, coming out of China at the very least, there are several new collections of books that are contemporary Chinese science fiction that are really good. Um, Kinlio has edited and put out two collections recently. One is called Invisible Planets and one is called Broken Stars. And then um, some... I forgot, I forgot the editors offhand, um, but there's another collection um, called The Reincarnated Giant. And, you know, of course, uh, Leo Tsushin, who's the author of The Three-Body Problem, those are everywhere now. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone has talked them up for, for very good reason, I think. Um, and they're easy to find. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for your time. Yes, of course. Thank you for having me.